Out here for a late Friday walk. You know, I just saw a station wagon drive by with its headlights off, and that's the only way to make a station wagon scary. Station wagons are probably the least frightening car. Why that is, I don't know. I mean, I associate them with moms. I associate them with moms and hippies and outdoorsy people, separately. Like growing up, a bunch of, it was the weirdest thing. All these moms, when I was in elementary school, drove red station wagons. Volvo, red Volvo station wagons. Like three or four different moms had one. Which I understand isn't every single mom. But in a small community of people, like three or four women driving red Volvo station wagons, like, when did that become a mom car? So I associated it with moms, you know, it was, it was kind of before SUVs really took hold. Because, I mean, that was a clear transition. Like, there was a time when nobody drove SUVs. They existed. But very few people drove them, and then all of a sudden, that became the standard family car, driving an SUV. But with the station wagons, yeah, the only people I knew that had them were moms or hippies. And so I don't think of them as a very intimidating car. There was a homeless guy who lived in Kirkland, the only guy, really. My friend Nick and I used to call him the Drifter because he lived in his blue station wagon and you just see it in different places, sometimes with him sleeping in it, sometimes elsewhere. And there was a time, like, my family had this detached garage in my childhood house and it, we, at some point we had built, like, a little deck on it. You know, it was flat on top and so, like, we built guardrails and then it just kind of became this little deck. And there was one summer night where my friends and I were like, let's sleep on the deck. Let's sleep on top of the garage. And of course, that's the one night when the drifter decided to stay in my neighborhood. Of course, it's the, the one night that we decided to sleep on the, the little outdoor garage deck that the drifter pulls up and decides to sleep down. It's like he knew. And being who we were, being kids, we were like, we're going to stay up really late. We're going to turn this into an adventure. And so we're up there and we're, we're goofing off. Very safe neighborhood. And then a car pulls up directly across the street from us. And we recognize it immediately. We're like, holy shit, it's the drifter. Because you'd see him in weird places. But never your own neighborhood. You're, ne you're never going to see the drifter in your neighborhood. But sure enough, he pulled up there. And then he got out and he puked probably drunk he got out and he, he stood next to his car and he puked and then I think he just went to sleep but we were terrified arguably the strangest man in our town the drifter the one the lone drifter showed up and parked like directly in front of us while we were sleeping outside but you know he wasn't intimidating like we weren't really scared of him it just seemed kind of pathetic, and the fact that he drove a station wagon made him less intimidating for some reason. But seeing the station wagon drive by a minute ago with its headlights off at night, I'm like, that's the only way to make a station wagon scary. It's for a station wagon to be driving around with its headlights off. But anyway, uh, I was thinking about morale. 
Because morale is different from your own spirit. Like you might feel good or bad on a given day, but morale is something separate. You know, morale is this collective force. Like, yeah, you can experience morale on your own as an individual, I guess. But it's very much something that's informed by everything going on around you. And what I'm very aware of, sharply aware of, is just how low morale is. Whether you're doing well in life, whether you're doing poorly, morale is low. And what is morale? I mean, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to turn this into some, like, boring philosophy bullshit. But you think about, like, morale in a workplace. And I've worked in places where it was so much better than most workplaces that you're going to work in. But when morale went south, it's so hard to get it back up again. Especially when the leadership sucks. Like, I didn't even dislike the leadership. They just weren't good at being leaders. And so morale, they were never able to right that ship. And usually what leaders do when morale goes south and they can't get it back up again artificially, because that's what they try to do. That's what happened at this workplace. Like, the leadership knew morale had tanked, but they didn't know how to correct that. So it's like, we bought Lay's potato chips for the break room. It's like, yeah, there's going to be somebody who's hungry and they're like, oh, cool, Lay's. But it's not going to bring morale up. You can't artificially boost morale. And uh, so when leaders realize they can't boost morale, they start blaming the people who have low morale. And that's what happened there. Like my morale was low. I got the blame for some things. About 10 other people started getting blamed for this low morale. And, you know, I think that's what we see as a country. I mean, because the morale in this country is non-existent right now. And you think about, you know, it was like, what, two weeks ago today that they reversed Roe v. Wade? Roe v. Wade. And there was this initial boost of morale for right-wing type people. I mean, I was saying this at the time. I was saying this two weeks ago. I don't think I said it on here, but I was saying this how... What's funny about that is there are a lot of people who have ended up on the right side. They've ended up on, you know, right-leaning through everything that's been going on in recent years. Like I said last night or the night before, you know, some of those people are just holding on for dear life. Some people have no right-wing principles, but they're just holding on for dear life in any way they can. And that's made them right-leaning. Right now, when you're holding on for dear life, your body kind of sways to the right, or there's more things to hold on to over there. But uh, there was this kind of spike in morale I noticed with people who were right-leaning, where it was like, even if they didn't care about abortion, you know, even if they couldn't care less about abortion or even okay with it, they might even be totally fine with abortion. They were kind of excited because it was like, this is a missile strike on the enemy's base. I think that's what it was. It wasn't that that particular issue was something they cared about. It's that, oh, this is a missile strike on the enemy's base, and I'm going to celebrate that. And then with people who legitimately oppose abortion, maybe there's some sort of like sustained spike in, like maybe they've been able to sustain it a little more. 
Like if you actually truly oppose abortion, the, the ruling two weeks ago might be something you can rest on for a little longer. For how long, I don't know, because you can see the response. You know, if they just took down Roe v. Wade and that was it, and the left was like, okay, we lost that battle, god dang it. But no, you can see where it, it motivates them. It gave the left a bunch of motivation, and that plays out federally. You can see where the president, many powerful politicians are like, we're not going to let this happen. So if you want to call that like winning a battle, it becomes quickly apparent that that like like launching a, a missile at that headquarters, taking down Roe v. Wade, that just means you're going to be immediately fighting a million smaller skirmishes around that. So you can't really celebrate. You can't rest your hat on that. So it's like this initial feeling of, oh, we got, we hit him. We hit him where it hurts. Is followed by, oh, now there's going to be, this is splintered into a million other battles surrounding that. And so it's like, there's no sustainable, you know, uptick in morale surrounding that. And then if you don't care about that to begin with, like if you're one of those people who's like, ooh, we launched a missile at the enemy's base. Like you can't even be excited about the ruling because the truth is you don't care about abortion. You don't care about abortion. So it's like, what is there to really keep your morale up if you don't even care about the issue and you're just happy that the enemy's mad? That's not really a way to keep your morale up. But I mean, that's one of my big issues, because I mean, going back to the workplace, it's not just workplace morale, you know, that you, you know, that, that, that uh, makes, you know, living and working at a place better. It's also that it's, it's kind of like a, a larger morale that keeps you even going there to begin with. You know, it's like having even the desire to go to work requires like some kind of national morale that you should give a shit about. Because I think about that, like working at jobs where like you don't like the job, but something keeps you going beyond just survival. Like something keeps you going there. Like you do feel like you're participating in something on, that matters on some level. Like, you don't mind paying taxes or something. Because that's the idea. Like, if you don't have some kind of national morale, you can't feel good about paying taxes. You can't really feel good about working. You don't even want to start a family. And I mean, I think that plays into everything that's going on. The, the decrease in people wanting to work, wanting to start families... All of that stuff. They don't have the morale to do it. And that's true down the board, regardless of what you believe. You just don't have the morale for it. So it's not even just the morale in the specific situation you're in. It's that there's this greater morale that even motivates you to do that, and we don't have that. And the things that are important to people... It's not that they're unimportant. And, you know, maybe at their core, they're not petty issues. 
but they become petty. You know, it's become petty. And so people are, are motivated by these petty interests. Like I was saying, like it's like thinking about Roe v. Wade and saying like, oh, I'm glad they, I'm glad the Supreme Court's knocked down Roe v. Wade, not because I care about abortion, but because it's a strike on the enemy's base and I, I want to upset them. I want to feel something. That's petty. It's not that the issue of abortion is petty. The issue of borscht. It's that your motivation is petty. And if your motivation is petty, everything becomes petty. You know, it's a thing about, we use the word petty like it only applies to certain things. But pettiness comes from intent. Pettiness comes from, you know, it could be any situation. But your motivations are petty, and that's what makes it petty. And when your motivations are petty, winning a battle, let alone the war, doesn't improve morale. It just becomes this tit for tat. But hey, that's what, what do you think this is? What, what do you think we're living under? This is tit for tat, period. Tit for tit, as I like to say. It's tit for tit. And when everything's tit for tit, there's, there's just no relief, no resolution. So what do you do to improve morale? Like, I wish I could tell you. I have nothing to, to say about that. And when we know what you can do individually, but when every time you gaze out, every time you look and see what's out there, I want to see what's out there, because that's what I do. You know, I, I like my world. I like the way I live. I like the people in my life, but there's still a part of me that's like, I have to look out there. I have to, I have just to check. I just have to check and see what's going on. And when you do that though, it's like, oh shit, there's nothing out there to improve my morale. You can't gaze out into the open world and feel inspired right now. At least most people. And you know, I'm running into that with a lot of people I know. We're outside of people that I talk to for very specific reasons about very specific topics. Most of the people I talk to have such low morale and it impacts their personal lives. Of course it does. And, uh, but it's, it's not great because it's like, you know, in order to improve your morale, it's like you have to find somebody who has good morale, high morale, and that's hard to find. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it pulls people away from each other. It's a depression. And that's how I would describe living in a country where there's no morale. But I mean, hey, look at, look at the world. Look at the past few days. Boris, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson stepped down. His entire administration. Huge. Big news. But you know what? I don't even understand it. I have friends in England, and we don't really talk about politics that much, but I have friends in England, and I realize, like, I have no idea what their political landscape is like. I know that, I know about Brexit, 
Brexit. I know about Brexit. I know that Boris Johnson's election around the same time as Trump Trump's felt was treated similarly. But I never understood if that was because he looked that way or not. You know, I never understood how much of uh, the association people were making between Johnson and Trumpsfeld was because they're both like fat guys with weird blonde hair. Because that's what people, they were like, oh, they got their own. They got their own Trumpsfeld, which is funny. Whoa, rabbit. Holy shit. That terrified me. I'm walking down the sidewalk and this rabbit... I see a lot of rabbits. We have a lot of rabbits around here. A lot of rabbits. But they're usually just hanging out, and if they get scared by you, they just kind of hop off into the bushes. This one was running straight down the sidewalk at full speed, and I saw it coming, and I knew it, I knew it was a rabbit, and I, and I knew it was small, but it was so fast, it, I, I, I've never seen that. In all my years, on all my walks, I have never seen a rabbit go just full speed like that. And it was jumping. It was like it was running. What was weird about that, it was moving so fast, it was like that rabbit was running. But it was like hopping, which is what they do, I know. But it was it was like, I don't know how that works. I don't know what the, what the physical mechanism is for what I just saw. Because what it, what it looked like and felt like to me just now is that that rabbit was hovering and moving toward me at, a, at full speed. It was like a cheetah speed, but without touching the ground. But then I, I did see it touch. That's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I needed a wake up. It jolted me. That rabbit scared me. But yeah, no, with the with the English stuff, like I know people made that connection. I know why people were upset about Brexit. I know that they kind of related the election of Boris Boris Borson Borson Johnson. The election of Borson Abortion Johnson. <laughs> I know that people were upset about that, but I don't know what the politics are. Because these things, these things are so relative, too. Because you'll hear things like that, that like, oh, in this country, the liberal party is the conservative party. In this country, like, people always say that about the U.S. They're like, Democrats are actually far right. Jeez, what the? People are so loud. So loud. Um, how's the guy supposed to talk? Everything's loud. I'll take a million hyperspeed levitating bunnies over one of those guys. But, uh, you know, people always point that out. They're like, well, in Europe, in Europe, left wing is right wing. Or they'll say, you know, it's, you know, they'll, they'll point out how, like, what we consider left wing in the U.S. is actually centrist or even right wing. Which maybe there's a point to be made there. I'm not saying there's not. But people like to point that out. But because of that, I have no idea what's going on in these other countries. It's hard enough to understand what's going on in your own country. What I do know is that when I looked up, when I saw that, that abortion Johnson had been, that he had resigned and most of his cabinet had resigned, I, I looked it up just to see what, what prompted this. 
even if it was obviously an accumulation of issues, what prompted this? And it was like, oh, what, he promoted a guy who had a history of gay misconduct. Like there was a, a British politician, I don't know his name, the gay man, and he had a history of harassing and making moves on young men. Men. Young men, men. Young men, men. Um, and uh, apparently, like, they overlooked that. Like, they knew that about him, but they still promoted him. And it, so it's amazing. It's comical. Like, when I looked that up, I was like, that can't be the reason. That can't be the reason. The British government didn't just implode because a gay guy making moves on men. Sure enough, I mean, that was the, it, that was the very least the straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm like, man, I don't feel anything hearing that. I barely know what's going on over there. But I imagine it doesn't feel good. Like if the entire U.S. government resigned today because a gay guy was hitting on men or maybe he, maybe there had been some abuse i don't know i don't know what he did i know that like what i read was that he, he has like a history of hitting on men or propositioning men but still like because a, a gay man in the uk government has a history of harassing men which is is terrible the entire government imploded that seems like it's just a perfect that seems like it's perfect for the times we live in. But it just tells me morale's got to be horrible over there. Morale seems horrible in Europe. I don't know where morale's good right now. I mean, Japan seems to have done really well for themselves. I like Japan. But then their recent prime minister got assassinated. I was watching that play out in real time late last night. I stayed up really late. And I saw a headline that was like, uh, I mean, they spell his name Abe. That's the funny thing. Everyone acts like they know who these people are. <laughs> that's, that's, it's just something funny we do where I, I knew who he was. I'd seen him. I'd seen him meeting with Trumpsfeld. I know they were buddies. Trumpsfeld got along with him. I didn't know his name. Is it Abe? It's, I'm going to call him Abe. You know, it's spelled Abe. Nobody's explained the, the pronunciation, so I'm going to say Abe. But I didn't know his name. But then, like, as soon as that guy gets shot, like, everyone comes out of the woodwork, and they know his name, and they know everything about him. They have an opinion on him. And I'm always like, you liars. You liars. You, don't, you didn't know his name. You don't know anything about him. But that's wild. You know, it's, it's a wild turn of events. And that guy, of all people, is just, that's very wild. Morale's got to be very low when somebody executes the recent prime minister. But that kind of plays into what I've been talking about on here for a while, which is, you know, human beings have this bloodlust. And history is the evidence of that, as well as what's going on today. But in certain places of the world, we've forgotten about that bloodlust. You know, in the civilized world, we've forgotten about that. And I brought this up a while back because I, I was watching like this little news snippet or a, not a news snippet, but one of those shows on, on a cable news channel 
where they just they have like four people who just talk about current events. It's hard to tell whether that's a news show anymore or whether that's like some something else. I don't even know what's what. But they were talking about Trumpsfeld. And you could see this unsettled look on their faces because it was on it was on MSNBC or CNN, one of the channels that's very anti-Trumpsfeld. And they were talking about him, and this is after January 6th. This is January 666. It was after all that. And you could see, like, they almost didn't know what to say or do. And they were, like, like, talking about how charges must be pressed against him. This must be done to him. He must be put in jail. But you could really see underneath it all, this ancient thing was kicking in where they were like, isn't there something else we're supposed to do to him? This unresolved feeling, you could, you could see it on their faces and in their body language, where it was like, isn't there something we're supposed to do to this guy? Which is like behead him, publicly behead him. You know, what they did throughout history. You seize power, and if the former king that you deposed can't escape into exile, what do you do? You lock him up and maybe you execute him. It's something ancient that we've always done. Maybe you execute his allies. But we've stopped doing that. We're not allowed to do that for good reason. But you can see where that's still in people. Where they're like, Aren't, isn't there something else we're supposed to be doing to this guy? They're like, they should throw him in jail. They should impeach him. They should press charges. But you can tell that's not what they really want to say. Deep down, you could be like, they have bloodlust and they don't know what to do about the fact that they can't realize that bloodlust. It's wild. And you, you see that a lot with the friend-enemy distinction, the tribalism that rules our lives now, where what people really want is just carnage. Like, what people really want from all this, from all this divisiveness, like, the resolution they want is an ancient one that involves... Physical, you know, you know, a, you know what I'm getting at. Like it involves some sort of like physical resolution. Like that's the the release of the pressure valve. But we have a little bit of that. You know, it's not like things are peaceful. There's a lot of chaos and a lot of violence that goes on, and some of that is motivated by these politics and everything. But it's not on an organized level. It's not on a large enough scale. And we've reached a point, though, where like the, the lines are so... They're drawn so hard in the sand. They're drawn so deeply in the sand that there's no discussion that's going to take place. There's no argument that's going to take place. There's no convincing of anybody. There's nothing to relate over. It's simply like, we hate this other person. That's all, all, that's all that's there right now. And that motivates people more than even the thing you want. Kind of like I was talking about with Roe v. Way, where, you know, you know, a certain group of people were more excited that it was an attack on the enemy base than they were excited that a principle they believe in, which they might not even believe in, uh, was, you know, given uh, that th this principle was upheld. 
they're more excited about the pain it inflicts on the enemy than the what actually transpired. And I think that's true down the board. I mean, I think it's it's some of the stuff that's being thrown in our faces these days. You know, some of the some of the stuff that the left is pushing. I don't think that that it actually fits what they believe at all, but it bothers the people they hate. And in the immediate, that feels better to people. In the immediate, inflicting pain on your enemy feels more satisfying. Because the reality is, I mean, it's kind of like talking about that Fourth of July shooter, where I'm like, people looked at him and they were trying to categorize him so that they could say their enemy did this. That was the first thought that people had. They were like, how can we blame this on the enemy? And I looked at the kid and I was like, how do you even categorize this kid? This kid is... How do you... When you look at that kid, do you see a stable identity? Do you see somebody who believes in certain principles? I see the opposite. I see a very unprincipled person lashing out. And even if that person said certain things or did certain things, I wouldn't even believe that they believe in those things. So I don't see how you can categorize this person or really link them to a, a solid identity. And I think that's true for a lot of people, though. You know, while most people aren't an emaciated SoundCloud rapper with face tattoos and dyed hair who wears goofy clothes, street clothes, street streetwear, as they call it, you know, while most people aren't that, I don't think most people really have principles that are any stronger than that kid. And I think their motivations are similar. Yeah, thank goodness they're not going out and shooting people. But when they express their outrage, I don't think it's coming from any more of a principled place. And while I'm on this topic, something that's funny that's come out about all this is one of the responses to the Roe v. Wade decision, the Roe v. Way decision, don't want to add a D there, it's become Roe v. Way. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's come out of this, though, is distracted a car. I didn't, I didn't know that car had a person in it. Um, what was I going to go with that? Oh, yeah, one of the things that's come out of this is there's a bunch of young women have been expressing the view that, okay, if you're going to take away the right to abortion, men are going to have to be committed and sign a contract where they promise to take care of the child. Like, if you get a girl pregnant in this climate, you have to sign a contract to take care of the child and be there. And men are going to basically have to commit. And I, it's so funny to see that expressed. It's like, oh, you're asking for marriage. Like, you've rediscovered marriage through this process. And I would have thought that was fake. Like, I saw that view expressed online where it was like, women saying like, oh, because all this has happened, men are going to have to 
basically sign a contract committing to every woman they sleep with where if they have a baby they're committed to raising that baby and they've just rediscovered marriage like I think we have a name for that I think we figured that one out before which is something I always 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 say on here always always which is that when you destroy something you will inevitably recreate it even if you give it a different name and that's often how people do it when they destroy something and then have to rediscover it again on their own when they have to rediscover the need for it you know their ego forces them to come up with a new name you know their ego comes up with like a need to be like well oh but but then not only that like they don't even realize they're recreating the same thing like think about how funny that is that human beings out there conscious adult human beings actually have the thought that oh, okay well if I, I can't just you know get an abortion then the person I sleep with needs to commit to me and commit to raising that kid and they don't even it doesn't even dawn on them that that's marriage and that's why it came to be in the first place it developed organically along the same lines but it's like they don't see that it's the same thing and if they, even if they did I think they'd be too proud to admit it because they've been on this kick for years now about independence and anti-marriage anti-family that now when you're presented with a situation where that makes sense again because I mean they didn't the idea of marriage didn't come about in a climate where people could get get abortions you know it didn't come about in 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 the current climate like the last you know 50 years the institution of marriage did not come about under those circumstances so when you take away some of these modern cushions like the idea that oh I can have sex freely and if I have a baby I can get rid of it and no commitment is required that's a cushion where it's like you can do this thing without facing the repercussions or the result that you would have during a different time but you take away those cushions and it's like oh now we understand you know why this stuff existed in the first place now we understand you know, why this came to be in the first place man I can't avoid people you know just a total side note I'm gonna get distracted here but it's like I'm walking really late here and I live in, a, in an area where there's just like suburban houses then woods and you don't see normal people like after nine o'clock at night pretty much as soon as it starts to get dark you no longer see any normal people no longer see any normal people whatsoever and what's funny about that though is like uh, the only thing I fear is people <laughs> like when I'm out for a late night stroll the only thing I'm scared of is like I'm like fuck I hope I don't see a person which think about it like I live like I said near the, the woods big big expanses of woods there are bears there are cougars in this part of the country 
you know, I'm not going to wander down a trail in the, in the pitch black. I'm a little too scaredy cat for that. But the main reason isn't even lions, tigers, and bears. The main reason is like, I really hope I don't run into another person. And so when I'm out like this, I'm like, fuck, there's a person up ahead. I'd rather have a million hyperspeed rabbits coming straight at me than run into another human being. Because probability is they're out of their mind. But anyway, uh, just, just to finish that thought, like recreating things that you've destroyed. Because, you know, the last 50 years, the last number of years, you know, obviously we've destroyed some of these institutions, these social institutions. You know, people don't get married anywhere close to the rate they used to. They're not having children. And when they do get married, they divorce. So, you know, that's very much, it hasn't been completely destroyed. It's been corrupted beyond belief. But then when that corruption, you know, when some of those safeguards around that corruption, like the fact that, oh, like you can do, you can do this, you can engage in this activity and not have to live with the result. When you take that away, suddenly people are like, what can we come up with to protect ourselves or to give us some kind of structure? And it's funny to see, you know, liberal women say, well, I think men need to, like, sign a contract committing. And it's like, what do you think that contract is? Call it any name you want. What do you think it is? But it's something that is just inevitable. When, we, when you destroy something, you relearn the lesson as to why it was created in the first place. And maybe some of that needs to happen. You know, I'm of the opinion that maybe some of that has to happen. Because I think I've had to learn that myself in my own life. Microco I'm a microcosm of the macrocosm. And, you know, I think sometimes you have to relearn that... Uh, like, like, I've learned why certain rules exist. As someone who likes to break some rules, I had to learn in my life why those rules existed. I mean, a good example would be just something as innocent as a bedtime. Like, you grow up being told by your parents, oh, you have a bedtime. You have to go to bed by this time. It seems pointless. Why do they care about that? Why can't I manage my own you know, rest. And let's say your parent one night goes, oh, hey, you know, you no longer have a bedtime. You can stay up as late as you want. So you stay up all night, you get no sleep, and you realize why they gave you a bedtime. It wasn't just a pointless rule. They gave you a bedtime because you'll feel like shit and you'll, you'll fuck your day up if you don't get enough sleep. And we're bad at regulating that ourselves, especially if you're a kid. It's like the, the, the idea that kids have where they're like, well, when I'm an adult, I can go to the corner store and buy as much candy as I want. When you're an adult with your own money and your, your own household, you can buy as much candy as you want. You can have a pantry full of candy. But you're going to learn really quickly why you don't do that and why your parents didn't let you have a lot of candy. It's like you break that rule and then you relearn it. But it's true for institutions as well. And we're living in a time where huge groups of people are trying to destroy as many institutions as possible, and they already have. They've already damaged some of them beyond repair. But then they're learning on their own why those things existed. And what it always makes me think of, like when I was reading these online comments, 
where people are like, we're going to have to come up with a system to like get men to take care of their children if they have children out of wedlock and all that. What it made me think of is that South Park episode I've brought up on here before where the hippies take over the town and the hippies, they think they, they're revolutionaries and they think they have all these amazing ideas. And then they're showing, ki- they're showing the South Park kids like this new community they made. And the main hippie, the MH, the main hippie, he's showing the kids around and he's like, oh yeah, this guy, he just makes bread. His whole thing is he just, he makes bread. And the kid is like, it's called a baker. I think there's even, I think he even said, he he shows these different people where he's like, oh, and see this guy? Like when other people like hurt other people, he, he like stops them and it's like, yeah, it's called a police officer. And so, you you know, I I feel like that was a a pretty poignant episode because it was like, you're just going to end up recreating the same thing. And it's probably better though to try to improve the thing that already exists rather than destroy it. Because one, you look like an idiot who's rediscovering something everybody already knows. Like you're Christopher Columbus or something. And, uh, but, you know, when you destroy those institutions, when you destroy those safeguards, things might get horribly bad in the meantime. And who knows if you'll be able to build something new. Like, who knows if you'll be able to accomplish something new under those circumstances. So the idea is not to destroy these things that, these time-honored institutions and ideas we have. The idea isn't to destroy them. It's to say, hey, this is what's wrong with it. And rather than destroying it, maybe we can improve it. But people are oblivious. They go so deep down into their little hole They're filled with such a constant presence of threats. That's a big part of it. That's one of the reasons why people are so enemy motivated. Not motivated by their own principles, which many people don't even have. It's that they're motivated by what they can inflict on their enemy. That's because they've dug themselves deep into this little hole. But in that hole, they have access to every possible threat that could be out there. Like, that's what's going on with technology and phones, is people are all day long exposed to the idea of a potential threat. Every news headline, every comment, everything they see on social media or is telling them, there's another threat, this is a threat, threat, threat. So that's what gets people in that mindset, is this idea that there's threats coming after you all the time, and there's no relief, even in your little hole. But thinking about like the recreation of you know, just just having to recreate what you destroyed and not even realize you're recreating it and not even learning that lesson of like, oh yeah, you know, it's through breaking the rule that you sometimes learn the value of the rule. There's other times where you break a rule and you realize it was a stupid rule to begin with. It's not that all rules and guidelines need to be need to exist and need to be around. It's that you learn the value of some of them by breaking them. And there are some that hopefully you don't have to learn that. Like you don't need to learn thou shalt not kill by killing somebody. You know, there's some rules that if you break them, it's over. The game is over. 
almost like some of those, you know, that's what I imagine. Like when somebody does that, like when somebody, you know, kills somebody and gets sentenced to life in prison, they ruin their life. It's almost like when you're playing a multiplayer video game and you get killed and now you just get to watch your friends the rest of the hour. Like your friends are still alive in the game and it's not game over. You don't get to hit reset. You don't get to end the game. The game's still going on. You're just not in it. Like that's what I imagine that's like. But uh, yeah, there's some rules you don't want to break because it's not game over. It's you're gonna be frozen. It's like freeze tag. You get frozen. You get tagged. You get frozen. But the game never ends. So you just stand there watching everybody else chase each other. So there's that, you know, where there's some rules you don't want to break, some things you have to recreate. But I was thinking about something the other night that plays into this, like the idea of like, oh, we're going to have like the, the South Park hippies being like, we're going to have this guy in our new society and he just bakes bread all the time. And the kid's like, yeah, it's called a baker. We already had that. We already figured that out. You know, our surnames are largely informed by that. You know, a lot of people have surnames that are derived from their trade. And now they don't even do that. That was an epiphany for me as a kid. When I was a kid, we, we knew a family with the last name Coppersmith. Their last name was Coppersmith. And I had a day where I just, I thought about that name and I thought, oh shit, their name is Coppersmith because that's what they did at some point in history. At some point in history, that family, they were coppersmiths. They worked with metal. They probably passed it down through multiple generations. And when the, the time came to have a surname, it was just a byproduct of what they did. And that's true for a lot of surnames. It refers to something they did. So that tells you somewhere in their history, they did something that corresponded to that name. I mean, my last name Stonefelt, you know, was originally Stenfelt. And that supposedly means Stonefield in Sweden. And my mom used to joke, you know, it's not her name. That wasn't her name. It's my dad's name. But my mom used to joke that, oh yeah, somewhere like in the, the family history, maybe they were farmers and they, like, they didn't grow much. Like maybe they were farmers and they weren't able to grow much. So like they just joked like, oh, they're those people with, with a stone field. It could be very literal like that. Because, I mean, you have names, too, that, like, mean, like, lives next to the oak tree in, <laughs> you know, lives next to the oak tree at the base of the mountain or something. You, know, you have names that correspond to geography. I mean, being, you know, studying Italians and Sicilians with my mafia research, I'll come across last names that just refer to the hometown that those people come from. I mean, there was a famous... Uh, mafia boss in Chicago, Jim Colosimo, and that name refers to where he came from. He was born in the town of Colosimo in Italy, and what was his last name? Colosimo. And then you come to a new place where that means something else. Like, it meant he comes from that town. And supposedly, like, tons of people from that town have that surname because they all came from that town. But it's funny how, like, moving here and the world modernizing, 
it comes to mean something else, but it still corresponds to that geography where that person came from. And that it's, it's similar to trades in that way. It's similar to these names like coppersmith, where who knows when the last coppersmith in that family was. This family was a mess. The family I knew was a total mess. And none of them worked with metals. None of them worked with copper. But somewhere that's what they did. But over time, and you know, they got disconnected from it. But it got me thinking about like if we were to do that again, if we were to rediscover that. Because you know, there's a catch-22 to all this stuff. Like the reason why we destroy some of these institutions is because there were parts of them that didn't work for us. And you can look at trades the same way, like multi-generational trades. Like, you know, I was a coppersmith, my dad was a coppersmith, and I was taught how to do that. And we still do a lot of that. I mean, I, I watch all these pizza reviews online and without fail, like, it's like, oh yeah, I'm the third generation owner. When I was 10 years old, my dad was teaching me how to make pizzas here, teaching me our family's specific technique, and he was taught by his father. And you, know, you could just, you could, I mean, why isn't their last name Pizza Maker? Hey, I'm Joe Pizza Maker. I'm the third generation to make pizzas. And there can be something confining to that, you know? There can be something that sucks about that. Because it's like, oh, I have dreams beyond this. Like society, the system we live under is telling me that, oh, because I'm from this long line of pizza makers, I have to make pizza too. And that sucks. If you're not allowed to do anything else, that sucks. But there's also a comfort to that. Like, there's a lot of people today, there's a lot of people in our world today who would probably tell you, hey, if I could just do the family trade, like, if from the time I was 10 years old, they trained me how to do something, and that's what I would do forever, and I was going to pass that on, and I could live, the, I could live life the way I want to live other than that, but I just had this kind of guaranteed profession. Everybody in town knows that you, you come to me, you come to us for that specific service and the, and we're named after that service because that's what we do I think there'd be a lot of people who are who agree to that and I think it ends up happening anyway and you see this like with professional sports with pro wrestling where like that's part of that's genetics where it always blows my mind how many professional athletes come from multi-generational athlete families not just father but sometimes grandfather and it's kind of a, a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing where on one hand they they have those genetics like that person has the genetics that that give them the height and the build and the ability to better be a professional athlete but it's environment versus uh, whatever the other one is Nature versus nurture. It's you know it's nature and nurture. Where like nature made you more cap a more capable athlete, but then you grew up in an environment where you were also taught the work that went into that. So yeah, you, your father was a football player. You have his build. You have some of his natural quickness, his natural strength. But then you grew up in an environment where you saw the hard work that he put into it. 
We were raised in an environment of hard work, hard physical work, study, how to be better at this thing. And then your father's coaching you in that. Your father's giving you pointers and helping you train. You're learning the sort of diet you need. You're learning what it takes. You know, you can't say nature or nurture is more important. You can see that they both fulfill that purpose. And how many generations of football players do you need to produce before you just change your last name to football player? Eric football player. And, uh, you know, it'd be funny to try to establish these things today. But I think part of the chaos that we're living under is we can't. You know, the, the, the shifting sands are everywhere, and a lot of them are quicksand anyway, that you don't even know where to begin. You know, it, it, think about IT. Think about some of the trades that people do today. How much longer are they going to be around? Like, if your dad's an IT specialist, maybe you're going to be better at computers but who knows if you're even going to be involved in that trade? Who knows how long that trade is even going to be around? Like, you even think about something like a webmaster. I sometimes remind myself that that used to be kind of an official term for someone who built and managed a website. 20, 25 years ago, when the internet was relatively new, you'd go to a website, and at the bottom, at the very bottom, it would say, Contact Webmaster. And the webmaster was just one of the few people who knew how to do that, who knew how to build and maintain a website. Nobody's called a webmaster anymore. You don't even have a webmaster. It's not called a webmaster. So you can't even create a lineage of webmasters. Yeah, I'm sure there are kids today who are involved in tech. I bet there are kids today who are involved in tech whose parents were involved in tech. Like there are kids today who are computer programmers whose fathers were probably computer programmers. In a different time and place, you'd change their last name to programmer. You'd give them the last name programmer. But that stuff's changing so quickly. You don't even know if anybody's going to be doing the same thing tomorrow that you're doing today. There's no stability. And it doesn't work that way anyway. You're not going to pass it on to your kid. Even if you do come from multiple generations of computer programmers, your kid's going to go out into the world and be like, well, I've got to learn all this new stuff that doesn't apply to what my dad knew. And I'm not going to work for the company he works for. I'm going to have to like apply to jobs around the country and be competitive. There's no stability to that. Like even if you're in a similar trade, there's no stability. And it's not like we still have like blacksmiths and coppersmiths and you can count on that. Cuz you know those things like those more those more rustic trades they're disappearing real quickly. Like, you think about coal mining. Can't do that, you know, as much anymore. 
these things that people counted on. I mean, you see what goes on in the Rust Belt of the U.S., where there are these trades that were multi-generational. In the Rust Belt, you might work at the same factory doing a similar trade, if not the exact same trade, as your father and grandfather. Like, I have a friend here in Olympia who's... You know, Olympia Beer used to be here. And, uh... Man, a lot of cars. But Olympia Beer used to be here. Now it's just this abandoned factory. It's a cool building. It's ugly, but it's cool. It's ugly, but it's cool. But Olympia Beer used to be here, and... It closed right before I moved to Olympia. But I have a friend here who, he's probably like 40... And his dad and grandpa and uncles all worked for Olympia Beer. And he still feels this pride, which is interesting. Like he'll boast about it. He'll be like, my daddy and my granddaddy and my uncle, they all work for there. You know, he's cool. I like him. And you should be proud of that. But the thing is, he couldn't do that even if he wanted. They got rid of it. They sold the beer company to a larger beer company in the Midwest. Now they, they still make beer with that logo on it, but it's produced in the same factory in Wisconsin as all this other beer. It's owned by a parent beer company. And my friend, like, even if he had wanted to follow in the footsteps, the same footsteps as his dad and grandpa, he couldn't. It's not even an option available to him. And what's funny, it's interesting that he's proud of it, though. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, was he deprived of something? You know, was he deprived of, uh, you know, some sort of uh, life, you know? Because the thing is, like, yeah, he could move to Wisconsin and work for that factory, but they're probably going to reassign him, you know, to, to like another, you know, you know what I mean? It's like you have to, in order to even try to follow in those footsteps, he would have to move to a different part of the country and probably wouldn't even end up doing what they did. So it's like this natural process was disrupted. And I think that's what we live under, where it's just disruption upon disruption. Because I even think about myself, where like I've worked in quote-unquote tech. I have a background in web development. And you know what? I really wanted to go into that. When I was in high school, I taught myself how to code. I taught myself graphic design. I taught myself web design. 100% self-taught. And I was like, I I'm going to do this. This is cutting edge. Living in the Seattle area, there were a couple times where I got to go to software headquarters. Like our neighbor worked for that educational software company I've talked about before. Because I hurt her feelings when she showed me this children's game she developed. And the cover had a like a, like a character made out of a sock. And she was like, she was trying to show me the game because I'm its target audience with some sort of educational software game. And like the main character was a sock with eyes. And so like, obviously she's very proud of this game they developed and she brings it over to the house when it's done, which that must be amazing. It must be like getting a record pressed. It's like, Oh, I get to see the final product. She brings it over and shows it to me. I look at it and I go, what is that? A sock. And her, her, her face just dropped. And we had to, like, meet about it. Like, my family, like, my mom didn't have meetings. We didn't have family meetings. But this lady was into that shit. 
she was kind of new agey, new agey lady that worked for an educational software company. And like, I hurt her feelings so bad with that one comment. I was like eight years old, nine years old. But I hurt her feelings so bad by taking one look at the sock with eyes and just saying dismissively, what is that, a sock? That we had to have like this meeting. Like I had to sit down with her and my mom and the lady like, like looked me in the eye and goes like, what you said was really hurtful. What you said was really hurtful. Like I put, we put a lot of hard work into this. I get it. Trust me, I get why that hurt her feelings. But all that's bullshit too. Like her reaction was bullshit too. Because the truth was, I was giving her honest feedback. I was giving her honest feedback. Which is that I'm your target audience. I hate educational software. Educational software sucks. And you're showing me something to get my reaction. I didn't ask for you to bring this over to my house. I didn't ask for you to hold this game in front of me. And you want my opinion because I'm a kid and it's for kids. And I took one look at it. I saw a striped sock with googly eyes on the cover. And I said, what is that? A sock? And it just crushed her soul. But it's like, hey, that's, that's good for you because that's what a lot of kids are going to do. A lot of kids are going to see that and react the same way I did. But anyway, through connections like that, like I toured their facility. I got to go and like see where they worked and it was amazing. Like they all had little cubicles, which like at that age, you don't realize that's hell. You don't realize that offices are hell when you're that age. So I was like, this is amazing. All these people know how to do things on computers and it's like 1998. It's like 1997, 98 or something. And these people go to this place every day and get to like design things like one of our family friends worked there her it was actually her boyfriend at the time also worked there and he was a computer animator self-taught and like I got to sit down at his desk and he was showing me these animations he was working on working on that seemed out of this world that was cool and like I got to go into the the manager I, I don't know what he was I don't think he was the CEO but he was like the top guy and uh like, even that seemed amazing. Like, oh, this guy just sits in front of a computer all day and, like, manages what these people are developing. This sound, this is amazing. I think I went to a dot-com, too. That was during the dot-com bubble. I think I got to go to a place, like a, like a dot-com office. I don't know what it was. But point being, like, at that time, that was before I had even started trying to do things on computers. That was before I even started trying to do things on computers. It was, though. It was before I even started doing anything. But, like, the energy was all like, oh, this is amazing. This is something that's new. The rules and standards haven't really been developed. You know, like, I thought about being a graphic designer, and I was like, that's like a dream job, being a graphic designer. Now, I remember it wasn't a dot-com we went to. My friend's dad ran a graphic design company. That's the other one I was thinking of. My friend's dad ran like a cutting edge 
graphic design company. And one of the guys who worked for him, like the star of the show, was this Asian guy who was just like an incredible graphic designer who would come up with things you couldn't even imagine. And like we toured their office and I was like, this is what I want to do. Like graphic design. And you could be adventurous, you could be creative. It wasn't really, it hadn't really gelled into what it is today, which is really boring. Like when you design, because I designed some websites for people when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, just as like for, you know, spare change, basically. People were like, oh, you know how to make websites? Well, I'll, I'll pay you money, a little bit of money to do it. Did that for a couple people. And you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. You could make it colorful. You could really do whatever you wanted, as long as it looked cool. But now we're in this world where like every single website is white with black text. They all follow the same exact trends. Doesn't matter whether you're going to a news site or a website for something creative. They all look the same. They all use the same exact text, design, colors, which is to say no colors. There's really nothing creative about it. And then the being able to access websites on phones, that to me was the death knell. I worked for a place where all of a sudden, like, I was working for a, a tech web company, a web tech company, right as smartphones became big. And I, I would say that was the death knell of web design, because all of a sudden, the primary concern was mobile, mobile friendly. And what does that mean? Well, it means simplifying, which is okay. Minimalism is fine. But it really, it really just like stripped all of the creativity from that. All of a sudden, there was no more room to be even a little bit creative because everything had to reflect what you see on a phone. Even though you were designing different versions, like even though the layout that you see when you access it on your phone is different than accessing it on a computer, they still had to be consistent. And in my opinion, they both dragged each other down. And it, it, it's, it would be miserable to be a graphic designer today. It would be miserable. It, I mean, I can, speaking from experience, it is miserable to be in web development today. All of that creativity, all of that energy that I felt as a teenager is just gone. That feeling that I felt going through these graphic design companies offices, these educational software offices, that whole vibe is just gone. And maybe maybe part of that was just me being a little kid. Maybe back then if I had to go there every day and grind away, I would hate it too. But I think something has changed. I think there's been maybe a little bit of both to that. And uh, getting back to like last names, like things are changing so quickly that like even if you did want to establish some sort of pedigree, some sort of lineage in a trade, I mean, what trade is going to be around? The ones that you do with your hands are disappearing. They got robots to do that. Can't even, I mean, you, mean, you can't even uh, count on cashiers. Like the local Target and I love Target, so I, you know, I hesitate to criticize Target, but the local Target, and I found out this is true for every Target now, is they 
aren't really hiring or training cashiers. Because every time I go there, there's a huge, huge line through the automatic checkout, through the self-checkout. And there's like one or two cashiers in this huge store that has tons of people in it every time you go. And I noticed this was happening more and more. And it sucks because like someone who's, you know, I'll go to the cashier rather than the self-checkout. I don't like the self-checkout. A robot talks to you and I'm not as good at it as the cashier. Like I always buy a bunch of yogurts and the rhythm and just the pace, like it takes me like 15 minutes to scan just four yogurts. And I stand there like an idiot. It doesn't even matter what I'm buying. I stand in front of the self-checkout like an idiot because it just will not read the barcode. And I'm just doing it over and over again. It takes me so much longer than if I just went to the express lane and let them do it for me. Like you watch a cashier who does that all day, every day, and your yogurts are through the machine in a split second because they have the rhythm. They have the pace. They do that. They're good at it. They might hate their job, but they're good at it. So I don't do this. I try not to do the self-checkout, but it's inevitable now. You have to. And that's a good example, though, where it's like what I heard about Target. The reason I brought Target up is because what I found out about Target is they're actively like they're hiring new people, but they're assigning them to do. It's not even the self-checkout. They're hiring new people to go outside and like deliver online groceries to people. Oh, there's three bunnies right there going really fast. My wish is coming true. Three hyperspeed bunnies coming right at me. Now they're going somewhere else. But uh, like I found out that Target is hiring, when they hire new employees now, they train them and assign them to handle online orders. So people order their groceries online, then those people go outside and deliver the groceries to the people waiting in their cars. And they're doing that instead of training new cashiers. But, you know, it, it muddies up the process because it doesn't matter how many times I go through the self-checkout, I suck at it. Whereas that person who does that for eight hours a day, every day, is really good at it. And it turns out the more you do something, the better you get at it, no matter what it is. I was talking about getting into online crossword puzzles. I've beat my record twice in the last few days. I had a guest from out of town, so I wasn't able to, ke to keep up on him, so I was catching up. I did one in 7 minutes 58 seconds, which was a new personal record. I never thought I'd get under 8 minutes. I think my best score before that was like 8.03, 8.06, so close, but I never thought I'd get under 8 minutes. I mean, I remember thinking I'd never get under 15 minutes, but I've been doing those long enough that it's not that my knowledge has increased. Like, my knowledge of words and phrases and stuff like that hasn't improved. I still know what I know. But I've gotten better at the mechanics of the game and just simply doing it a lot. Like, you get a better feel for, like, what hints are alluding to. You get better at... at your mechanics get quicker. But yeah, the other night I got 7 minutes 58 seconds and I, I couldn't even believe it. I didn't When I was playing, I didn't feel like it was one of those games where I was going to beat my record. I was just like, yeah, whatever. I'm trying to do this quickly. If I beat my record, cool. But then I looked and it said under 8 minutes. But then I was like, well, I'm never going to beat that. 
sure enough, like last night, I think it was, or the night before, I was doing the latest one, 7 minutes 51 seconds. So my new personal best is 7 minutes 51. Point being, when I first started playing these online crossword puzzles a few months ago, two or three months ago, they were taking me like 40 minutes. The mechanics were weird. I didn't know what I was clicking on. The hints were really obtuse. There's that word again. I couldn't understand what the hints were saying because they're all puns. They're all like clever. And so I didn't understand what it was asking or prompting. And it would take me like 30 to 40 minutes initially. I felt stupid and sluggish. But three months or two months, whatever it is, of doing those every single night, I'm doing them in seven minutes, 51 seconds. And so the more you do something, the better you get, the quicker you get. It's just how it works. Cashiers, the same thing. Cashiers do something all day, every day. They're really good. But we're getting rid of them. Target's phasing them out. We've seen where restaurants now are experimenting with robots that deliver your food to you. We're removing human interaction. But we're also removing things that people are good at, trades. And so what do you, what kind of surname would you even take on? And you can see the importance of that stuff with a lot of people. It's not that I think everybody needs to have a trade and they can't leave it. Their family has to do that forever. It's not that I believe that. I would hate that for me. But there would be comfort to it. And you see where people are kind of lost as a result. Because, you know, one of the go-to questions we ask a new person is, so what do you do? And we know that means professionally. We know that means, like, what is your profession? How do you earn a living? How do I categorize you in society? And I hate that question. Because you want to say, well, I read these books. I do this. I like to lift weights. I like to meditate. That's what I do. But no, that's not what they want to know. They don't want to know your hobbies and interests. They want to know what your profession is because that's ancient. We used to name ourselves after our profession. So, you know, it's that deeply built into us that, like, at a social get-together, it's a cliche, but I've been in those situations. Like, I don't know, like 10 years ago, 9 years ago, I ended up in a situation with a kid that I grew up with that I hadn't seen for, like, 15, 20 years. He was a kid who went to my elementary school, then we went to different schools and I just lost touch with him. I ran into him. He's now an adult who it turns out is working at his dad's company. He's following the family trade. But the first thing he asked me was like, what do you do? And as much as I hate that question, you know, I, I'm not going to be mad at someone for asking it. It's just that that's built into us so deeply. What do you do? What is your trade? Because that's also how we bring value. Like this kid, his dad ran an orthopedics company. They made like fake legs or fake feet. And that's a very special trade. Like he obviously learned 
more than the average person about orthopedics growing up because his dad ran an orthopedics company. So he goes into it and he, he knows the field. You call him uh, David Orthopedics. Their last name is Orthopedic. And that has no use to me, you know, but if it, if I, if it did have a use, I would know who to go to. Like if I did need an orthopedic, I would know maybe where to get it or who to, who to ask. But now like a lot of the, a lot of the trades and things people do, like, you know, it's hard to even say how much value it has to you. Like you'll ask somebody what they do or you'll hear about what they do and you're like, I don't even understand what that is or what use it has. And the age of management and HR, you know, there's so many jobs based around that now. And you hear those people try to explain what they do and it sounds like nothing and in many cases it is. And would that be something that you would proudly name yourself after? Oh, my name is Megan and I'm an HR manager. My name is Megan HR. Is that something you would proudly tack onto your name that you want to do forever? Because that's part of it too, is there truly are so many bogus jobs. I've had them. A lot of people I know have had them. But the weird thing about bogus jobs is like, you know deep down if your job is bogus. You know if it's just a bunch of nonsense but you're expected to pretend like it isn't which is why like when your boss is around you act like you care and even though your boss knows that their job is bogus and they spend most of their time twiddling their thumbs like they're gonna pretend that it matters while you're around so it's this game of acting that i think is bad for us you know a guy wrote a book about this but you know i think that's mentally bad for us that we we all seem to know the uh you know, we, we all seem to know the game that we're all playing with each other. We're like, my job doesn't matter. You're my boss, but your job doesn't matter. Somehow we're part of this thing that's making money and giving us income, which is cool. But like, we all know like this is mostly bullshit. But when we're around each other, we have to pretend that it isn't. When we're milling around, interacting we have to pretend that we believe in all this shit meanwhile it's going to disappear tomorrow like nobody's going to be doing this in a week nobody's going to be doing this in 10 years and uh that's goes back to morale we haven't forgotten about morale which is that that lowers your morale when I've had jobs like that, I have low morale and so does everybody else because you know it's all freaking nonsense. You know it's all bullshit. Hey, baddie. And, you know, as long as you know, though, I guess. I mean, like, knowing that it's bullshit can be bad because, like, how do, you, how do you improve your morale if you know that your trade, the thing that you depend on to eat, like, how do you improve your morale when you know that it's bullshit. Hey buddy, excited dog. Um, you really can't. 
you can only justify it where it's like, I have to do this to live. I have to do this for money. I have to do this for X, Y, Z. That doesn't really improve your morale though. Cause you have to, cause morale doesn't come from just surviving. Surviving isn't morale. If surviving was, if surviving brought your morale up, we'd all have a lot higher morale because we all managed to survive. Most of us. Um, but you know, what do you do in that situation? How do you improve your morale? Especially if you're having to lie about it, especially if you're having to pretend this matters. And if you know it doesn't matter, well, that's not going to help you. But I don't think it's any better to think it does matter because that's crazy to me. Like some of these people, like I saw somebody make the point, and I think this is a good point, where men who have bogus jobs tend to readily admit it. Like men with bogus jobs will be like, okay, my job is just total bullshit. And I basically do nothing and have to pretend like it matters. But I go home and I, I laugh. Whereas women in those positions are like, oh, this is, this is crucial. What I'm doing is necessary to the functioning of society. Like you think about somebody who's a manager, like it's kind of a cliche now, like, like the woman who, who thinks she's a girl boss in some sort of managerial position that's incredibly bureaucratic. It's just sending emails and dragging files into folders and acting professional. Like there's a lot of women who are like, oh, this is, this is a big deal. I'm a big deal. And I don't know how much of that comes from the fact that like women have been deprived of that existential nightmare for many years. And now they're like, okay, like finally they've opened the men have opened the doors, but men have opened the doors to something that sucks. Like you now know the secret that what men were doing. Like, yeah, it's great to have financial freedom. Like it's great that women can work and have financial freedom and not depend on a man. That is a good thing. But it doesn't mean what they're doing is important. It doesn't make them important. But that is a big difference I've noticed. And... That's been my experience working in offices and just having female friends is that like, and just what I see out and about, what I see in the world is that like when women have nonsense, bureaucratic, do nothing jobs with a title, they often think like, this is really important and I'm a big deal. Whereas like a man in that same position is like, oh yeah, this is a bunch of bullshit and the hardest part about my job is not acknowledging that openly all day long. Just a little something. I, I noticed somebody else commented on that similarly. But that's where we're at, where it's like we get a lot of our identity from our trade. You know, I was talking about identity on here, but one of the big parts of our identity comes from, one, like what we do, which is why so many surnames draw from your trade coppersmith they also draw from, from your geography which is why we see all around the world that people have names that correspond to something geographical in their family history way back there somewhere stone field 
There must have been some reason why my name in Sweden meant stone field. But then you remove people from that geography. You remove people from that natural geography that they're sometimes named for. You take away the meaning of a trade. And your son isn't going to be doing the same thing you're doing. And you're not doing the same thing your father was doing. So there's no identity to be found in these traditional areas of a trade or your geography or anything else that we used to derive these things from. And what do you do? How do you, where does your identity come from? Because your morale is dependent on your identity. You identify with something, and then that identity as a whole, which is more than just you, the whole reason you have an identity is because it corresponds to other people who share that identity, and together, your collective morale comes from that shared identity, from what's happening within that shared identity. But we're inventing new identities, we're destroying the old ones, we're destroying the institutions built around those identities. The ways that we developed our identities are disappearing. Your trade doesn't mean anything. It's probably a bunch of bureaucratic nonsense. And what do you do with that? Well, we're probably going to have to recreate that at some point. But what do we have to do to get there? How do, we, how do we get to the point where we recreate these fundamentals? And like we forget how arbitrary things are and that like an entire world can be built around randomness. Like, like people talk about like cargo cults and that kind of thing, like the African tribe who found an empty Coca-Cola bottle and had never seen it before. So it becomes a religion to them. They worship this Coca-Cola bottle as some strange object. And that goes on for generations. Well, that's kind of what we're doing. Like we inherited these names that obviously come from something that once had meaning to our identity. And we think, though, that this is something that wasn't arbitrary to begin with. Like one of your last name's Coppersmith because one of your ancient ancestors was a little better at swinging an axe or a, a hammer than, than his neighbor. Then, you know, that, that turned into a whole system of teaching his son how to do it and developing technique and, and all that. But it's like we're, we're worlds beyond that. But we still have these names that have stayed with us. You know, we still have... There are certain institutions that we just know will be there. Like looking at marriage and these women who are upset about abortion being like, well, it seems like we need some kind of system in place to ensure that women who are forced to have children have support and have a man in her life to take care of his kid. And it's like, yeah, that was called marriage. We used to call that marriage. You're learning why that exists. And you're learning why it was found the world over. Marriage didn't just exist in one place. People discovered these things worldwide, as they often do. 
it's like I've talked about with eschatology, you know, you know, uh, eschatology, where it's like somehow, no matter where you are and what you believe in the world, no matter what time period you're in, you seem to have some sort of belief in the apocalypse. And some of the smaller details might differ, but we still, it seems like we inevitably recreate that. And that's what people are observing right now with the left, where the secular atheist left has recreated religion. They have their own false idols. They have their own dogmatic beliefs that once you take yourself away from that, like once you get outside of that bubble, many of those beliefs seem just as wild and out there and rooted in something far outside of our immediate reality as religion. And people become really serious about these things. They become religious about these things. They become cult-like. And so you're, when you destroy religion, you now create a new one. And guess what? That religion has its own eschaton. Climate change, like, yeah, I know that you think that you have it right this time because you have science. Oh, no, no, no. This is different from Hinduism, Norse mythology, Christianity. This is different from the Kali Yuga because science tells us that the world is ending. Well, you still think the world is ending and that people need to commit to a more virtuous lifestyle to deal with that in the right way. So you think that like you have it right this time, but the bigger picture of that is that you're one of many groups of people throughout history who thinks that. You've recreated something. You know, you think you're secular and atheist, but you've created your own gods, you've created your own priest class, and you've created your own apocalypse. But what's interesting is that you have all those things despite rejecting those things from other groups. But you still recreated it. The end result is still the same. Even though you think you're right, those other people are wrong about the apocalypse because they believe in the apocalypse due to some old scripture they found. I believe in the apocalypse because the measurements and the scientists say this. The point is, you still believe in the apocalypse and you still believe that some sort of virtuous conduct will either get rid of that apocalypse, slow it down, or do something. At the very least, you know, make your soul lighter. Make you feel less guilty. Which is where a lot of that comes from. You know, even in a religious context, where it's like, oh, if you behave more virtuously, you'll feel less guilty. And so even if the apocalypse comes, you'll be a little bit lighter. You'll be weighed down by less. That seems to be universal, no matter what you believe. Even if you believe in nothing, you come to that conclusion or somebody else presents it to you. Really interesting. And that's the conversation I would love to be having. Why do we end up here? What can we learn from these patterns? Because they are certainly patterns. But morale is so low. 
Your morale comes from your identity, and we have less and less of an identity. People are disconnected from their friends and their family. They're disconnected from their trade. They're disconnected from the thing that makes them a living. They're disconnected from their own name. If you're named after something that your family used to do or where your family used to live, chances are if you live in the West, you're very disconnected from that. And maybe a little bit of that is okay, but we've gone so far into that. And we think that going back or staying put is going to hurt us even more. Meanwhile, it just seems to get worse the further we go. I don't have a solution. I don't have a way to improve our morale. If I did, I wouldn't shut up about it. It's hard enough for me to not shut up these days. But if I had some kind of solution that I thought would work, I wouldn't shut up about it. I would say, I have this idea. I don't, though. These are all observations I'm making connected to this, but nothing I've said in this episode is a solution. Nothing I said is actionable. But I think we can find a solution or something if we stop distracting ourselves and repeating the same patterns without realizing it. Like if you're upset about abortion and you're like, we need some sort of binding contract that will prevent men from knocking up women and being deadbeat dads and realizing, oh shit, like I just discovered why marriage exists. I just discovered why we do have a binding contract in the form of marriage. But you don't want to admit that, or you can't admit that, or you just, you're so deep in the muck, you can't even see that. And that's, I think that's the biggest problem of all. We're so deep in the muck that we can't see these things. We can't see these patterns. We see what's immediately in front of us, and we end up coming up with what we think are solutions that it turns out was the same thing that we just destroyed. But we can't admit to ourselves or we can't see that it is the same thing. And that's crazy. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children and run free